We're starting a new series today for a few weeks and it's entitled Prayer, God's Great Idea. Let me ask you a question first. When the word prayer is mentioned, what kind of thought or emotion does that summon up in your heart and mind? I guess for some people, the overwhelming feeling when prayer is mentioned would be that of spiritual intimacy, of communion with God. But for some others, maybe for many of us here today, uh, it will perhaps be something like inadequacy. When I was at school, I often had the words can do better put at my annual uh, report. Can do better. And uh, often when I look at my own prayer life, I think that those same words can be used can do better. For some of us, we might feel not inadequate, but intimidated. Maybe we hear people who just seem to have a great gift of praying, and when they pray, it brings a little bit of heaven down, and we are inspired by their prayers, and uh, it's obviously that they're walking with God, and we love listening to them, and we are inspired by that, but it has a little bit of an intimidating effect upon us as well. I love reading church history. I love reading about the men and women that God has used mightily in the past. Um, but sometimes in reading church history, I'm intimidated by those great heroes of the faith who spent hours upon hours in prayer day by day. People like George Muller. I'm not sure if you've, you've come across this gentleman. He was a great man of faith who founded orphanages in the Bristol area in the early 19th century, uh, long before the welfare state. And he spent several hours a day in prayer, praying that God would meet the needs of all of the orphanages, pleading, and my words, sometimes uh, God did that in just quite astonishing ways. Muller cared for over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. He established 117 schools, teaching Christian education to over 120,000 children in the early 19th century. Just amazing, isn't it? Inspiring! But then when I read about his prayer life, I find it a tad intimidating. What about Martin Luther, that great catalyst of the Protestant Reformation? who supposedly said, I have so much to do today that I'm going to spend three hours in prayer before I start. <laughs> That's the effect that that has on me. Or Susanna Wesley, the mother of John Wesley, who was the founder of uh, Methodism, and the mother of Charles Wesley, who was the great hymn writer, that she would spend hours every day sitting in a rocking chair praying for a rather large family. So many others that I could quote. Maybe for some of you here today, prayer is a little bit more of a burden than it is a pleasure. A little bit more of a duty than a delight. And uh, maybe a guilt trip, perhaps caused by the realisation that your own practice in prayer isn't quite the same as your theory. What do I mean by that? Well, if you were asked the question, how important is prayer to a Christian? You would probably, as a Christian, speak highly of prayer. You would say that prayer is essential. You would say that prayer is indispensable. But in practice, maybe you get a little bit fidgety after about five minutes. I'm speaking from experience here, by the way. 
Maybe we modern Western Christians have not had the need to pray quite in the same way as Christians living at other parts of the world and in other times in history. In former days, for example, if a child fell ill, the parents cried out to God. Today we can phone 111 or 999. We can make an appointment at the doctors. We can get some over-the-counter uh, remedy from the local pharmacist. In the wealthy West, I don't believe that we actually pray with the same urgency and desperation as other Christians from around the world. In our wealthy West, we have insurance policies and retirement plans and food banks and the NHS and benefit system. And I've often asked myself, can we realistically pray, give us today our daily bread when our cupboards are full of a month's food? Does our prosperity somehow dilute our need to pray in the desperate manner of Christians in other parts of the world and in other times in history. Prayer. Well, I, some, I, I guess that some of us, upon the mention of that word, are a little bit more sceptical about prayer because we live and breathe in an atmosphere of doubt in our world. What good is prayer, we might say, against a, a nuclear threat or terrorism or climate change or world hunger? And you might have lots of questions today. Is God listening when I pray? Why should God care about me when the world is in such a mess? Why should God answer my prayer for a parking space when kids in Syria or Yemen are being bombed and are starving? Does God really care about the details of our lives, such as getting a house sold or finding the lost cat? In our house, it's a lost tortoise. Is God only con concerned with the real consequential issues? And should he really be bothered about our needs? If God knows everything, as we believe that he does, why should we pray? And does a person with praying friends stand a better chance of physical healing than someone who doesn't have anyone praying for him? Why does God, on times when we pray, seem so far away? Does my prayer change God, or does it somehow change me? Now, all of these emotions linked with prayer, inadequacy, intimidation, burdensome duty, a guilt trip, doubt, confusion, as well as spiritual intimacy, are all emotions that I have personally experienced over the years. And the reason I want to say this is because at the start of a series like this for four or five weeks, I want you to know that I am not coming here as some kind of seasoned expert on all of this. I'm not a seasoned expert at all. But I'm a fellow traveler through life. So maybe a good place to start this talk is by asking the question, what is prayer? I suppose we could use the acronym that we've used before, ACTS that it is A, adoration, C, confession, T, thanksgiving, S, supplication, or meaning bringing our requests to God. And I would say, yes, it's all of those things. It's praise, it's gratitude, it's bringing our requests to God. But even more fundamentally than all of that, prayer is position. Now, when I say that, I don't mean physical position in standing up, sitting down, kneeling, being prostrate, hands in the air. I don't mean that at all. 
But what I mean is a spiritual position. Prayer really is taking time out with God so that God can realign our thinking. So that we can come and see ourselves and the world around us and God himself through God's perspective, not through our own. It is to come before God much in the way that Jesus did in the Garden of Gethsemane when he prayed, let this cup pass from me. He was obviously speaking of the, the crucifixion there. Let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but your will be done. You see, at that moment when Jesus faced the horror of the cross in his own humanity, he cried out to his father, let there be another way. But his father helped realign his thinking, not my will, but yours be done. Prayer, I believe, is far more than a shopping list of requests. I am so, so grateful to, to James and Carol for putting the prayer network uh, together for our church so that we as a church family, we're, we're able to pray for the needs of our church. And it's a wonderful privilege to be able to pray, to know about it first of all, and then to pray um, for those who need a touch of God in their lives. Very often it's physical healing. But you see, prayer is much, much, much more than just bringing our shopping lists of requests to God. Even those might be very legitimate and God requ requests us to do that. But prayer is more than that. You know, through prayer, I, be, I, I, I believe that we begin to see from God's point of view. As someone once said, we must stop setting our sights by the lights of each passing ship. Instead, we must set our course by the stars. I came across that quote just this week and uh, I thought it was a wonderful quote. And as Christians, prayer helps realign our thinking um, and our world way, uh, worldview away from the fads and the whims of society in which we live towards God. Just as a sailor would set his direction by the stars, not by the lights of passing ships, we too need to set our thoughts and our minds and our hearts according to God's perspective, which is what we do. And one of the chief benefits of prayer. Now, like quite a few of you in this uh, congregation this morning, I, have, um, I suffer from a medical condition. If this medical condition is not corrected, it could be life-threatening. And it is especially so if you work with machinery or if you drive for a living. This medical condition that I have doesn't cause me to wear a bell around my neck to warn others off. It's not contagious. It's not some rare tropical disease. But this condition that I have is called myopia or to you and me, short-sightedness. And without visual correction of specs or contact lenses, um, watching television would, would, would just be a blur. Or even seeing your faces this morning would just be a blur. Maybe it has its uh, upsides as well. <laughs> I get that, okay. I remember when I first had this, I was in my early 20s, and uh, I remember one Saturday afternoon struggling to watch the, the, the football league results on the television on the Saturday Sports Roundup. And all I could see was, was a blur. And initially I thought it was the telly that we had and probably that had something to do with it because it was one of these little 14-inch portables, black and white, with the aerial, around aerial on top. Now anybody under the age of 50 will probably wonder, what on earth is he talking about? What century did this man live? 
because these days we can have so much better, a thousand times better on our mobile phones. But we had pretty bad reception in our upstairs flat and I thought that was the reason. But then there were many other things that I wasn't seeing well at all and it was, it was blurred. Did you know that there is a spiritual equivalent of myopia? Spiritual myopia is the inability to see things from God's point of view. And many of us suffer from that from time to time. That spiritual short-sightedness. When our spiritual vision is limited to the here and now, to this life, to the immediate, to the physical, to ourselves, where we are the centre of our own world, but do not have any real ability to see beyond ourselves to embrace God's perspective and just as I went to the optician all those years ago in order to get my spiritual short-sighted my no my short-sightedness not my spiritual I went somewhere else to get that sorted <laughs> just as I went to get that sorted you know I think it's so important to recognize prayer not really as coming and bringing our shopping list before God but as a place where we get that spiritual myopia uh, sorted in God's presence, taking time out just to realign ourselves to his perspective. Yes, so, it's so important, isn't it, in the world in which we live because the world in which we live has a tendency to cause me to lose sight of God's vision for my life. You know, we turn on the television and we are bombarded by a barrage of adverts, each assuring us that success is measured by our possessions or by our physical appearance but prayer it restores my vision of myself of life in line with God's perspective prayer raises my sight beyond the the petty and the inconsequential stuff of life prayer often challenges me over the way that sometimes I reverse the roles and I I am no longer to think of God as one who serves me but rather the other way round that I am here to serve him. Prayer allows me to stand back uh, away from sometimes the trivial pursuits of life and reminds me of who God is and what God desires uh, for my life. Now, most of us are aware of these words in uh, Psalm 46, I put it on screen for you there. Verse 10, be still and know that I am God, I will be exalted among the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. And uh, many of us have fridge magnets and we have posters and all sorts with those great words on. But this stillness does help us to recognise God and to recognise his lordship in our lives. I think I said a few weeks ago when I dealt with this in a, in a fuller way that most of us here, most people, actually live with their accelerator pedal stuck to the floor. We live in the fast lane. We seem to try to cram in too much to our days and our weeks, aided and abetted by modern technology. And on that occasion, I think I confessed to my own failures in this area of how I attempted to maximise every minute of every day in order to try to get as much in as I possibly could. And I find it exceptionally difficult to actually obey this command of being still. When the Bible was translated into Latin in the 4th century, Latin was the language of the, the Middle East, it was the Roman language, uh, the word be still was translated into the Latin Bible 
by the word vacate, from which we get our English word vacation. So what's that telling us, perhaps? It tells us that God is inviting us to take a vacation, a holiday, for us to stop for a moment trying to be God ourselves and for us to allow Him to be God. Now, I don't know about you, but for me, taking a holiday has a rejuvenating effect. It's restoring, renewing, refreshing. And after a holiday, I feel a very different person. The world is a different place altogether. I can once again see the wood for the trees. To take a holiday, to be still, is to give God space and time in our lives that He can bring His perspective back into our lives. That we see God, that we see the world in which we live, that we see ourselves in a new light. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. I'm sure that you've experienced those times when heaven is silent. Have you ever experienced those times? Heaven, where, where are you, God? You, you don't seem to be around. You seem to be absent. Those times, perhaps, when we question the goodness and the grace of God and His, a power, and His power to rule. The world around us seems to be in such a mess. Wonder what will become of it all. On the television, we witness those arrogant and abusive world leaders jostling for position, dangerous men, with too much testosterone. Any ideas who I'm talking about? Don't shout it out. We have that sense of unrest, that sense of terror, where you see terrorism, we say uh, warfare in many nations. Many people stand against God and his people. Martin was uh, a little while ago just mentioning what we've seen in the news this week by that uh, Pakistan Christian, uh, Asia Bibi how she has been on death sentence for a number of years, being falsely accused of blasphemy against the Prophet Muhammad. And uh, this week, she's been free from the courts. Uh, the decision was made, but that wasn't accepted well in the country of Pakistan amongst the Islamic fundamentalists. And they've taken to the streets and they've called for a decision, for a, a reverse decision to be made and for her not to uh, leave the country. And my fear is for that lady and for her family, uh, that these fundamentalists will get what they require. But on the other hand, I fear as well that uh, if they don't get what they want, then there will be reprisals against churches and, and, and Christians in, in Pakistan in coming weeks and months much as uh, has been in recent years out there. And it just seems as if there's a nation here setting itself up against God and his people. And uh, I must be honest that on times it just makes my heart sink and I feel very, very fearful. But what's the antidote to fear? It may be that, it may be something else, it may be something totally different in your lives. What is the antidote to fear? It's prayer. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations, I will be exalted in the earth. He is Lord, isn't he? He is Lord of all. This week I was reading uh, author Philip Yancey, and he tells of a black man who told his story in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of South Africa in the, in the 1990s. 
and he told of the way that he had suffered at the hands of uh, white police officers in apartheid South Africa. <clears throat> and during his time of suffering, when they uh, put electrodes to his body and beat him with truncheons, this man cried out to God. The police officers listened to him uh, call out to God and they laughed in his face and they said, we are God here. That was their response. In the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, it seems as if the tables had turned. They were now the ones on trial. They sat in the defendant's box with their heads bowed and their accusers bearing testimony against them. Now in Psalm 2, what we have there is a, is a wonderful picture of God scoffing and ridiculing the claims of kings and rulers in this world who thought that they had the upper hand. Uh, just like perhaps those South African police officers or the Islamic fundamentalists in Pakistan or the demigods that we see leading North Korea. Let's look at those words together. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth rise up and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their chains and throw off their shackles. My word, that is so true, those words, isn't it? For the world in which we live in, where so many are anti-God and anti-Christians. And then the psalm goes on. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. I love that. The Lord scoffs at them. He rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. And again, come back to Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted in the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. What's that telling us? It's telling us that when we come to him, when we spend time in his presence, he brings a new perspective to our lives. Not only to our lives, what's going on in our lives day by day, but he brings perspective to the world at large and all that we see happening around us. Prayer enables us to see that God is still on his throne. He's alive and well. And uh, prayer also enables us to see ourselves as God sees us. Sometimes we don't, you know. We don't see ourselves, and that is one of the the greatest hindrances to the Christian life, I would say, is when we don't see ourselves as God sees us, that we are objects of his outrageous love, that love which he has lavished upon us unconditionally. Who am I that the Lord of all the earth would care to know my name, would care to feel my hurt? Who am I that the bright and morning star would choose to light the way for my ever-wandering heart? Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. And then in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? What does that tell me? Again, it tells me perspective. And I'm convinced that we have a God who desires to communicate with us, his children. And he will find a way if we are serious and if we have a heart's desire to truly seek him. 
I think that sometimes we fail to hear the voice of God simply because of the, the white noise and the static and the clutter in our lives. Uh, because the stuff, other stuff, just gets in the way and encroaches hearing that still small voice. I read of a guy who wanted to address the problem of a cluttered life. So what this guy did, he signed up to have a few days retreat, prayer retreat in a monastery. And uh, the monk who showed the man to his cell said, I hope your stay is a blessed one. If you need anything, please let us know. And we'll teach you to live without it. <laughs> and maybe, just maybe, that's our problem as well. Maybe that we only come to God with our shopping list instead of having a desire to allow God to be God. Telling God what I want from him so often is the way of all of us instead of asking him what it is that he wants from me. Do you know that we need God far more than we can get out of him? Do you know that? There are many occasions when Julie and I are separated. Maybe Julie is going down to South Wales to visit her parents or maybe I have to go off on a conference. And uh, at the end of each day when we are separated, it's great to catch up on a telephone call. Mainly we, we, we do FaceTime. And, um, you know, if Julie's gone down to Swansea, she'll inevitably be telling me that she's visited Joe's Ice Cream Parlour in the Mumbles, the best ice cream in the universe, and be rubbing it in there. Uh, if I'm away, uh, then normally I'll update her on the long-lost ministry friends, people that we've known for many years that we've not seen for a while, and uh, conversations that I've had with them and how things are going and what's happening in their lives. And we discuss all sorts. We discuss the weather. We're British after all, aren't we? Uh, current events, politics, Brexit, rugby. In essence, what we're doing in those conversations is really meditating on the day with each other. And what I've just described really bears a striking re resemblance to prayer. One ancient definition of prayer is keeping company with God. Prayer is talking about the stuff of life. Do you remember when Jesus was asked by his disciples, Lord, teach us to pray, and he came out with what we know as the Lord's Prayer? You break down what's in that Lord's Prayer. It's all about the stuff of life. It's about the will of God and food and debts and forgiveness and temptation. And I'd be the first to admit that speaking about uh, speaking to God about life in this way is actually far more difficult than actually speaking to Julie on FaceTime. Would you find that as well, or is it just me? Oh, you're so spiritual. Come on, be honest, you're in church now. I find it far more difficult speaking to God than having that kind of dialogue with Julie on FaceTime. You know, it seems as if I'm the one that's doing all the talking. I struggle to find my conversation with God as dialogue. God doesn't use audible words. Yet when I speak to Julie, there's a response. There's empathy, there's laughter, there's that smile. But God doesn't seem to do that in any measurable way. 
But, but, listen in. As I persist, and as I give God space, and as I do my best to still my heart from all the clutter of my lives, I do actually hear his voice. Not audibly, but softly, silently, touching something which is deep down inside of me, where he brings his perspective to my life. And in those times, I want revenge. And he silently and quietly reminds me of forgiveness. And the way that I have been forgiven by him is the standard which way of, of forgiving others. When I want to live selfishly, he reminds me that the one that I call Lord and Master selflessly gave up everything for me. When I'm proud of my accomplishments and when I'm tempted to be a little bit high and mighty, he reminds me of his son who took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist and washed the feet of his disciples. When I'm tempted to grumble and complain about my lot, he reminds me of everything for which I need to be thankful. And I also realise that I'm not talking to myself in this inner dialogue. It's actually the Spirit of God who is praying within me, communicating the will of my Father. It was Mother Teresa of Calcutta, a master at this school, school, who wrote these words. Prayer, she said, is simply talking to God. He speaks to us, we listen. We speak to him, he listens. A two-way process, speaking and listening. <laughs> Those words are so incredibly simple and yet so incredibly profound at the same time. Time's gone. I'm going to read to you a story. I need to read it to you because it's well written. And uh, this week I, uh, I came across a, a blog that uh, Philip Yancey, the author, wrote. And he writes these words. Uh, sit back. This is, this is quite long, but it's, uh, I'm sure, worth our while listening to this. On a trip to South Africa in 2004, I met a remarkable woman of mixed race named Joanna. After helping in the struggle against apartheid, Joanna decided to tackle the most violent prison in South Africa, a prison where Nelson Mandela had spent eight years. Tattoo-covered gang members controlled the prison, strictly enforcing a rule that required new members to earn their admittance to the gang by assaulting undesirable prisoners. Prison authorities looked the other way, letting these animals beat and even kill each other. I visited Paulsmore Prison where she works. It's an amazing place. Five separate prisons linked by underground tunnels, holding 8,000 prisoners in all. It was built for less than a third that number, so conditions of overcrowding are unimaginable. Prisoners here wait as long as four years for their trial, and bail for violent crimes is unavailable. Prisons assault the senses. They're ugly places of concrete and steel. The stench of body odour, clogged toilets and disinfectant fills the nose. Doors slam and prisoners yell at you as you walk through the tunnels. 
Interestingly, the prison is divided into rooms for gangsters and non-gangsters. Every cell and meeting room has assigned to it gangsters only or non-gangsters only. <clears throat> you can tell the gang members by their distinctive tattoo markings. Several hundred men crowded into a kind of exercise room and Joanna led the service. She has a remarkable presence, greets each prisoner by name and commands respect from inmates and authorities alike. Joanna and her husband, Julian, bring in speakers, a keyboard and CDs, which gives the prisoners a taste of normal life. Most days they're only allowed out of their cells for one hour. So a chance to attend a church service is a welcome relief. I'll not forget <coughs> the sound of several hundred mill voices, the sound of echoing, uh, the sound echoing off concrete walls, singing lustily. Soon and very soon, we're going to see the king. No more crying there, no more dying there. The actors did a few skits in a tiny square of space surrounded by the prisoners, which the men roundly applauded. And I spoke to a truly captive audience. Then we heard some of their stories. I'm a murderer for life plus 38 years. I'm a rapist, I killed my wife. Each told of how God had changed their lives and how they seek to live for him, even though they may never get out. Joanna and Julian run a program of restorative justice in which they walk the men through stages of confession, repentance, then victim restitution. After the meeting, we went into one of three cells in the prison, which was designated Christian cells. 49 men sleep in a room about the size of a living room. They have three tiered bunk beds and a few sleep in, uh, on pieces of foam on the floor. They all wear orange uniforms and as you look around, you see a sea of orange. Laundry hangs from the bars. The prison has no heat and Cape Town gets cold but with so many people in the room, it warms up quickly. On every wall, the prisoners have hung the words of hymns. The most touching to me was, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. A remarkable fulfillment of Joanna's mission. Alone, this attractive young woman started going each day into the core of that prison. She brought a simple message of forgiveness and reconciliation, trying to put into practice on a smaller scale what Nelson Mandela and Bishop Tutu were trying to affect in the nation as a whole. She organized small groups, taught trust games, got the prisoners to open up about the details of their horrific childhoods. She visited every day that year and every year since. That year before she began her visits, the prison had recorded 279 acts of violence. The next year, there were only two. Joanna's results were so impressive that the BBC sent a camera crew from London to produce two one-hour documentaries on her. I met Joanna and her husband, who has since joined her in the prison work, at the restaurant on the waterfront of Cape Town. Ever the journalist, I pressed her for specifics on what had happened to transform that prison. Her fork stopped on the way to her mouth. She looked up and said, almost without thinking, well, of course, Philip, God was already present in the prison. I just had to make him visible. And I just love that, love that answer. 
God was already present in the prison. I just had to make him visible. And that's what we are asked to do as well. That's what prayer does. Prayer shows us what God is already doing and what God wants us to do to partner him in his work. You see, we don't need to beg God to care about the town of Tamworth or care about the disillusioned youth on our streets or the isolated older people in our homes or the homeless or the marginalised. He is present. He is already at work. He is present in our high schools and in our primary schools. He is present in the seats of power. He's at work. But he needs us to make him visible. Let's pray together. Dear Lord, dear Lord, we thank you for this great gift of being able to communicate with you through prayer. Forgive us, Lord, when we see this gift more as a burden than a pleasure, more as a duty than a delight. Forgive us, Lord, for those times when we attempt to get our will done in heaven rather than your will done on earth. When we bring to our shopping list requesting that you do all of this for us but never stopping long enough to ask you what it is you want us to do for you. And yet, Lord, we do know that on these times when we take time out in your presence, the old song says, in your, sit in your presence, not rushing away to cherish each moment. Lord, at those times we have found new strength and perspective to our lives. Help us, Lord, see these times in your presence in the way that you see them. We pray.